Last week we went through the first three plagues, and we've talked about, and we will talk again tonight, about how these plagues come in cycles. There's a narrative cycle that, that makes this story probably initially easier to tell orally, and we can still pick it up as we read it here. And so tonight we're going to see the next two cycles of three, and then of course next time will be the death of the firstborn, which is the tenth plague, the capstone of everything that God is doing. And we talked last time that God is, of course, going out to liberate his people. He's going to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt back to the promised land. He's going to establish them there. But we also saw that he is planting his flag on the earth and saying, this is my nation. Y'all have forgotten me, but I'm still here. I'm still powerful. And your gods are nothing before me. And he's using Egypt to tell a story that will last forever. And it has lasted forever because here we are still telling it. doesn't seem to be losing steam. He's going to do something incredible so that the world will know that he is the Lord. And especially the nation of Israel will know that he is the Lord. And at the center of this conflict is the figure of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh who was, of course, the king of Egypt. And his refusal to submit to God is our focus tonight. There are those, both inside and outside of the church, who believe that they can bargain with God. They think it's like meeting the devil at the crossroads and you can strike a deal with the Lord. Or they think that it's like a business venture and, yes, I'm probably going to get the worse end of this deal, but, you know, certainly we can meet in the middle and compromise. And Pharaoh was one of those men. But as we're going to discuss God is not pleased by partial commitment. And he certainly will not bargain with you, negotiate with you, have a conversation with you about his commandments or his glory or his word. We're all in love with the story and the conversation and we're all on a journey. And that's not how the Lord sees it. The Lord comes in and says, I have told you what is good. And you don't get to talk back to me. And as we go through this, you will see, and we'll apply this broader, that there is a distinction that God makes between the obedient and the disobedient, between the submissive and the so-called independent. And you will see that life for Pharaoh was harder than for the Hebrews and even the, the fearful Egyptians than they were experiencing. They did not experience these plagues as he is going to. And that is how life works. People think that they're being bound up and and oppressed by God's commandments, but the Lord only tells us things for our good. And when you don't walk in his ways, life becomes harder. His commands are not burdensome, the Bible says. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he also told Paul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. And that's what Pharaoh is doing in this this section of scripture here. And unfortunately, we all tend to fall into that and some more so than others. So tonight is a warning. but I hope it's also an encouragement for you if you are walking before the Lord faithfully. So as we did last time, we're going to go just about one plague at a time here. Some of these sections are bigger than others. But we're going to begin with chapter 8, verse 20, and actually finish out this chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses... Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. There's that phrase again, that you may know that I am the Lord. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So this begins the second cycle of plagues. There are three cycles of three. The first three were the river turned to blood, the frogs, and then the lice, or the maggots, as I said, it might be a better interpretation of that. And you have second cycle here, which is four, five, and six. The flies, which will be the death of the livestock, and then the boils. And we saw that with the first three plagues, the means by which they were performed was by the rod of Aaron. Remember, he was the one that God had, had told Moses to use as his own prophet. The second three, we do not see either one of them raising their staff. And that will change again as we get to the third one. And as usual, the first plague begins by going out to Pharaoh at the water. This is plague four. So plagues one, four, and seven all begin by God saying, go meet Pharaoh in the morning at the water. And then two, five, and eight, the Lord just says, go to Pharaoh. And then three, six, nine, there's no warning for the plague that comes. So there is a little bit of rhythm to these plagues, and, and there's a, a structure to the story, and I already mentioned that this probably aided in the oral retelling of the story. So that way you, you get into that rhythm and you get into that structure, but uh, I always think it's interesting to call out the, the way that the passages are organized. Well, plague number four, Moses warns Pharaoh about the coming swarms of flies. Now, this is just the Hebrew word swarm. And the word of flies is added. And this is usually what that kind of swarm means. But it's therefore difficult for us to nail down exactly what kind of insect or fly that this was. But obviously it was something that was disgusting. Something that probably was biting and was uh, very, not just a nuisance, but troublesome and, and even fearful to these Egyptians. You've got to remember this, this flow. And I've told you... I don't, I don't think that it's right to say that these were all just natural events. God was obviously intervening here. But there is a, a rather natural flow to these plagues. The first thing that happened is the Lord turned the Nile River to blood. It's like something out of a horror movie. It's disgusting. Which, of course, would have caused the frogs to leave the water. And you can imagine the Lord multiplying those frogs and they get into the houses and they get into everything else. And then all the frogs die when Pharaoh asked Moses to pray for them. And it says that they piled them up in great stinking heaps of frogs. Plague three is, is lice and maggots. Imagine all of the insects beginning to breed in these giant piles of stinking frogs. And then plague four, of course, according to the Lord's timing, and of course, under his sovereignty, all these little larval insects begin to metamorphize and become flies. So now you've got big stinking, buzzing piles of frogs. They're in the houses. They're in everything. Remember the frogs got into everywhere. And now all these flies are all over the place. I used to spend an awful lot of time in the landfill when I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And you saw all kinds of nasty things in that, those landfills. One of them down in Bessemer was an indoor Landfill, transfer station is the politically correct term for that, but it was disgusting. You would come in and pile all this trash. I mean, it's taller than a three-story building, some of these piles, and it would get hot in the summer, and this thing became this big oven full of garbage, and the flies were, you get out of the, the truck, and they're in your face, and you're spitting them out of your mouth. Imagine that in your kitchen. 
trying to put your kids down to bed and there's flies all in their faces and in their eyes and in their ears. But here's the thing. There's a division that the Lord makes this time. The children of Israel in the land of Goshen, which remember is in the north, in the Nile Delta, were not affected by this plague. And there were those that tried to give natural reasons why this happened. You know, somehow there's a difference between the humidity between upper and lower Egypt. Uh, it's clear why. The Lord says, we all had the frogs, we all had the maggots, you would expect us all to get the flies, but my people are not going to get the flies. So that you will know that this is not just a random happening, I'm in control of this. And this distinction between Pharaoh and the Egyptians and Moses and the Hebrews is further heightened when Pharaoh says, look, if you want to offer sacrifices, because remember at this point we're not asking for emancipation. We're asking to go into the wilderness three days journey and offer sacrifices to the Lord. He says, if you want to offer sacrifices so bad, just do it here. And Moses says, we can't do that here. He says, our sacrifices are an abomination to the Egyptians. Not quite sure what that means. Genesis 46, 34 told us that every shepherd was an abomination to the Egyptians. Talked about this several times. The Egyptians would pluck out their hair. They would be bald. They would be clean all the time. They very much valued cleanliness and beards and hair and dirt were, were repulsive to them. So somebody who's a shepherd and spends his time with livestock, not somebody you want around. Well, if they're now going to have this giant festival where they're sacrificing goats and cows and bulls and draining the blood and lifting it up to the Lord and then eating these things, Moses says, we're going to have a riot on our hands. And remember also the reason that they had oppressed the Hebrews in the first place was they were afraid that they would rise up against the Egyptians. So if you see this enormous, large, secondary population having this enormous festival and celebrating the downfall of Egypt, Moses is like, these people are going to come for us. This is hardening and sharpening the distinction between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And Pharaoh is trying to get a deal here. He's trying to keep control. He says, all right, you can go, but, but not very far away. That's somebody that's lost, but is still trying to make it look like they've won. You know, you just can't go that far. But of course, eventually, when Moses pr prays and the flies die, he reneges on his promise. He hardens his heart. And this is our first point of application here that we're going to carry through. There is a distinction between those who serve the Lord and those who only pretend to serve the Lord. If you are serving Jesus Christ with all your heart, he is the reason you get up in the morning. His word is law in your house, and his grace is the best part of your life. There's a distinction between you and other people. And you, notice, you know this. You see the way those people talk who don't know Christ. And it's, it's almost foreign to you in a way. Because there's a distinction. And there are those that try to do both. They try to straddle the line. They try to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. To play games with God. And if you do that, you're going to face calamity. Pharaoh doesn't want to submit to the Lord, but he knows he's got to deal with the Lord. So he tries to get as much as he can and then break his promise at the last minute. And there are those that do that with the Lord. They kind of believe in God and they also know that their family believes in God and everybody around here does. So I've kind of got to make this deal with God. If you do that, you face calamity. Is this because God's going to come and smite you if you disobey him? No, not necessarily. But by neglecting God's warnings and God's commandments, you reap what you sow. The Lord tells us how we ought to treat one another, that we ought to love and forgive one another. But if you walk in bitterness and unforgiveness and you hold a grudge against everybody you meet, slowly you're going to find your circle of friends starting to dwindle. You're going to wonder, why is God doing this to me? Well, God hasn't done anything to you. He told you what was good. You did something else and now you're reaping the consequences of that. 2 Corinthians 6.17, Paul told the church, Therefore, go out from their midst, that is from the world, from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. The Bible tells us to maintain the distinction between the church and the world. And there are those that take that to very odd extremes, but it does not, does not eliminate the Bible's commandment that we are to be distinct in holiness and in righteousness and in faith. Pharaoh wanted God to leave him alone in his sin. That's what he wanted. So he compromised. But then he tried to go back on it and he suffered for it. 
which is exactly what we're going to see continue. We're going to read uh, 1 through 12 of chapter 9 now. We're going to get two plagues at once. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, that is a pottery kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the second plague of the cycle. And remember, it always has Moses going to Pharaoh. And not early in the morning at the water, but just go to Pharaoh. And he announces the next plague, which was the death of the livestock. Again, you can see how this might proceed supernaturally, but also naturally as well. Where if these nasty, biting flies had been feasting on these piles of dead frogs that had been swimming in the bloody water of the Nile, and now they start to bite the eyes and ears and bodies of the cattle and the livestock, they're going to get sick. And the Lord strikes them. But again, there was a distinction. And you can see how Pharaoh verifies it. Go make sure that it's not just our cattle. But it was just their cattle. All the Israelites still had their flocks and their herds. And Pharaoh really has no excuses now, but of course he hardened his heart again. Now the plague three of cycle number two, so that's the sixth plague, as always has no warning. And God strikes them with boils. He has them gather soot from the pottery kiln where they would have made bowls and things like that. And they throw it up in the air. And I, I, it says that the soot became boils on all the people. I think what's going on here is th this is a symbol. This is something that the Lord is causing Moses to, to do to show Pharaoh what's going to happen. I would imagine that the bites of the flies that were eating all the nasty frogs, which bit all the livestock and killed them, well, they've been biting the people too. So imagine you get bit by an infected, nasty fly that's been eating bloody frogs and it bites you. You ever been bitten by a horse fly real good? Yeah, it hurts. And now you've got them all over your body and you've got these big, infected, pus-filled sores coming up all over your body. Described as blisters and actually erupting with sores is the Hebrew there. A disgusting disease. And in particular, it identifies these magicians. At the, on the third plague, the magicians were not able to duplicate what Moses did. On the sixth plague, we hear from the magicians again that they're not even able to stand before Moses. 2 Timothy 3.8, by the way, gives some of them the names of Janus and Jambres, but we don't see that in the text of Exodus. And then in verse 12, it's a very important note. Up till this point, it is said either Pharaoh's heart was hardened or Pharaoh hardened his heart. But here in verse 12, it says the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God steps in and hardens Pharaoh's heart, which is just what he had promised to do. In chapter 4, verse 21, at the burning bush, and in chapter 7, verse 3, when Moses had his initial doubts, the Lord said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. We are very uncomfortable with this thought because we value our agency as people, especially as Americans, where we believe that Every person has a right to voice their opinion and to speak, and you cannot silence somebody else. The thought of God 
turning someone's heart in the direction he wants to go is frightening and can be even outraging to us. But the text is very clear about what it says. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. This is a longer passage, so please turn there, and we'll get back to Exodus in a minute. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is using Pharaoh as an object lesson, and he explains what's going on here. So he's talking about the Lord choosing some people and not choosing others. He's talking about this doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of using the Lord turning someone else's heart. And we hear that and we ask the question that, that Paul asked in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's what we think. That's not fair. But Paul says, by no means. Been going through Romans, you know that phrase. Megenoita. May it never be. Of course there's not injustice on God's part. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and this is now a quote from verse 16 back in Exodus 9. For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Understand that? How can God blame Pharaoh for not letting the people go if God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he couldn't let them go? That sounds like a very profound, intellectual, philosophical question. But look how Paul answers in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Paul doesn't spend a lot of time defending this. He just says, God is God and God can do what God wants. God made you. God can use you. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. We take comfort in that as citizens, do we not? Well, you know what? God's in control. God can turn his heart. God can change his mind. Well, then why do we get upset sometimes when we see God exercise that right? Paul rebukes us. He goes, you don't get to judge God. Ever have that conversation with your kids? You know, there are those, and you know, maybe you're one of them. I'm not trying to insult anybody, but this is my thought as a parent. Where people say, you need to explain everything to your kids and make sure they understand what's going on. Otherwise, you know, you can't, you can't tell them what's wrong. I don't see that that way. I see it as they get older, of course, right? As they get older, I'm going to explain to them. But there are certain things that I tell them that either they're not going to get or they're not ready to hear yet. So the answer is because I said so. Well, why do I have to do what you say? Because I'm your father. Because I was the one that, that gave, well, I didn't give birth to you. Your mother gave birth to you, but we're a team here, right? I gave you life. I'm your father. I pay the bills around here. I'm instructing you, I'm teaching you, and you're six and you know nothing. <laughs> now we kind of get that, right? So why do we think we can come to God and think that somehow we're on some sort of intellectual level with him to question what he does? You can't tell people what to do. You can't make people do things and God goes, why not? <laughs> well, I don't like it. It doesn't matter if you like it. <laughs> Kids will say that to you sometimes, but I don't want to. And you're gonna. Because here's the deal. The first time you sinned, God would have been justified in sending you to hell that instant. So everything after that is patience. And you don't get to tell the Lord how much patience he's allowed to have with you. Paul even said in Romans chapter uh, 2, I believe it was, he said, are you presuming upon the grace of the Lord? I can sin, God will forgive me. It's a dangerous place to be. And we also should keep in mind, by the way, it's not like Pharaoh was a nice, kind-hearted old grandfather and then God turned him into this man that wouldn't let the people go. Pharaoh was a, was a wicked oppressor. He was, a, he was a slaver. He was doubling down the workload on the people so that he could remain lifted up. 
He was the one that said, I don't believe in the Lord and I don't care what God has to say. He had already gone through five whole plagues where he said, I'm going to do what I want. He had already denied his promises to the Lord that many times. And so God says, fine, if that's the way you want it, have it your way. And you say, well, he might have repented later. I think God knows the answer to that question better than you, don't you? There's really not a whole lot more to say than that, other than you have to trust that God is only going to do what is right. And here's the warning for us. John 16, verse 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit works to convict us and to speak to us and tell us what's right. And like Moses came before Pharaoh, the Holy Spirit comes to us in our hearts and tells us what's right. But 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says you can quench the Holy Spirit. Compares him to a fire that you can pour water on and say, I'm not listening to you. You can silence your conscience. 1 Timothy 4.2 says some people walk around with their conscience seared with a hot iron. So that there's no feeling left in it. Well, my conscience doesn't bother me. And sometimes you go, well, it should. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that if we persist in that long enough, God gives us over to our sins. And that's exactly what happened to Pharaoh in this chapter. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That decision is locked in. No more chances. For those of you who are playing games with God, figuring eventually I'll get it right, do not assume that you will always have full control over your capacity to return to God. You don't get to do it on your own terms. You do it on His. Well, He owes me another chance. No, He does not. You will not always have command of yourself, and there may come a day where you can no longer hear the voice of the Lord. And if that puts a little bit of panic into your heart, then good. That means that you still are within reach. But also, here's something to remember. God is doing something bigger than just one man in this story. God is doing something cosmic, something historical, something that is going to echo throughout the generations. He says, I've raised you up, Pharaoh, because I'm going to tell a story and use you as an example of what happens when people resist me and hurt my people. And that is God's prerogative to do that. He is the potter. We are the clay. And your, your pot that you're making is, doesn't get to say, I don't want to be a pot. I want to be an ashtray. But I'm the one making you. Our will is important in our dealings with God, yes. And I'm never going to deny that. But we also should never minimize the predestination and the sovereignty of God. Because it's in there. And it makes us uncomfortable but as Paul said, it doesn't really matter what makes you comfortable because it is the Lord himself and he can do as he wills. Verse 13 now, and we'll go to verse 35, which is the end of this chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Point being, it's not because I can't, it's because I've been patient with you. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That's that verse Paul quoted in Romans 9. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. 
There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I, my people, are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go when you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So now we begin the third cycle of three plagues. And as before, we're starting with a morning visit, and we're using Moses' staff as the means this time. It's going to be hail, locusts, and darkness, the third cycle of three. Now God comes in and tells Pharaoh, I, I could have smitten you by now. It could have been over for you all, but I've chosen not to. Because I'm giving you another chance to do this right. He's reminding him who's in charge, and he offers him a warning. He says, hail is coming, so get inside. And it says, those who feared the Lord, and I'm sure at this point there were a lot of Egyptians who at the very least feared the Lord. He says, you ain't got to tell me twice. Everybody inside. But the rest did not. And then it says, rain, thunder, hail, and fire struck Egypt. Very interesting, wondering what exactly this was like. Now, some have speculated, and I, I, I'm not convinced, but I like to put these things out there, that, that this is some sort of volcanic activity. One man I read, he said, if Mount Sinai had erupted, and you know, we're going to see later that Sinai was this mountain that was in fire, and some people conclude it was a volcano, then what can happen is when all that fiery ash goes up into the air and then a rainstorm comes, some of these chunks will freeze in the cold and they'll come down, but they also, because of the static electricity in the air, will begin to burn up as they fall. And it essentially becomes acid rain that burns the people when it comes. I, I don't know that that's exactly what's going on here. It's really hard to pin it down because it's a miracle. You know, it's, it's, we don't have to find a, a natural answer for all of this. But it says it was raining hard, it was thundering, there was hail in the rain, the worst hail anybody had ever seen, and there was fire. Was this a lightning thunder strike that caused things to catch fire? I don't know. It just says fire. But Goshen, the land of the Hebrews, is not touched again. He says it was the, the flax and the barley that were struck down here, so the, the crops were ruined. Uh, this would place this right around February of that year, if you're interested in that, because the wheat harvest had not happened yet, but the barley was ready to go. Now, Pharaoh has here what seems like a repentance moment. I have sinned, I'm wrong, my people are wrong, and God is right. Now, if you're actually repenting, that's the right words to use. That's exactly the right thing to say. Although Moses very wisely does not trust him. And this is something that as you get older, and certainly in ministry, and me as a pastor, you've got to be able to have that discernment that this might all sound right, but is this really what's going on? Because this is how some people play their religion. They ignore God's commandments, and then they get hurt. So we already talked about those that want to try and have it both ways. They ignore God's commandments, they get hurt, and so then they run to God, and they have a big sad moment, and they ask Him to help. And usually the church comes around them and helps, and everything gets better. And then as soon as everything relaxes, they go right back to their old ways. This is what Pharaoh has been doing on a you know, national scale here. I'm going to say this. So what if you come and weep and pray to the Lord if you have no intention of changing, 
Repentance means to change. In Greek, the word is metanoia. It means to change your mind, to think differently. In the Hebrew, it's the word shuv. It means to turn around, to walk differently. So it's not just, I feel really bad for what I've done. It's, I feel really bad for what I've done, and I'm going to make a change. Not just, I'm going to make a change until I get back on my feet, and then I'll go right back to what I was doing. Maybe you've had a relative or a friend that's in and out of rehab because when things fall apart, they go and they get it all taken care of and then they come back out and before you know it, they're right back to where they were. So what if a person weeps and prays? You're not saved by an altar call. You're not saved by a recommitment. Those things are great. But if they don't lead to a life change, you've got to be like John the Baptist. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. The Pharisee showed up and John says, I'm not baptizing you because I know what you're like. And I don't believe that you're sincere. Are we allowed to say that to people? Oh, yes, we are. John chapter 2 says, When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when he saw the signs that he was doing. A lot of hands went up. I believe in Jesus. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's, this is the case. Somebody comes and says all the right things and they're weeping and they're, they're saying, oh, this is the time I'm finally going to get it right. And there's a scene in, in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn at the beginning where his alcoholic father has this amazing come to Jesus moment and all the church is weeping and the ladies are embracing him and the men are shaking his hand. And that very night he goes out on, on this huge bender and, and I believe he actually dies in that story. And, you know, Mark Twain was kind of satirizing the church's tendency to love the big dramatic conversion, even though nothing's really changed. We need to have discernment and wisdom about this and be there to welcome people. But at the same time, if this is the fourth or fifth time it's happened, then to have some discernment and some wisdom and to be shrewd about this. Because the Lord has told us what to do. Hail's coming. Bring your cattle inside. If you don't do that, you're going to get burned. God has told us to be good stewards of our money. The Lord says, don't spend more than you have and, and get a whole bunch of credit strung out because then other people are going to have it over on you and you're going to suffer loss. So when you do all that and then you say, oh no, all my money's gone. Well, we feel bad for you, but it, like, you didn't bring your cattle inside. And the hail came. The Lord tells us to abstain from sexual immorality. The Lord tells us that the marriage bed is to be undefiled. It is between one man and one woman for life within the bounds of marriage. But you go off and you do all kinds of sexual depravity. And all of a sudden you get some kind of disease. Or you end up in a relationship with somebody that is bad for you. Or even if you end up with a child that you weren't prepared to have. Again, we have compassion for you, but you didn't bring the cattle in when the Lord said hail was coming. The Lord says control your temper. That a gentle answer turns away wrath. And that we should be slow to speak and slow to anger, but quick to listen. But if you then go and mouth off at everybody that makes you angry and you lose four jobs in a row, you didn't bring the cattle in when the hail was coming. So come to God in repentance, but don't you dare come just to get out of a jam. Oh no, I lost everything. I better go back to the church so they can fix me up again. You mock God by doing that. And sometimes as a leader, you have to be able to see that and not allow it to continue. I've had many instances, not here in this, in this ministry, but in previous years and previous times, where I knew what someone was like. And I'd been three or four rounds with this person, and I have a conversation with them, and I say, we're not doing this anymore. I'm not going to keep meeting with you every week for you to tell me about all the sins you've done so that you can feel better and go back and do it for another week. But then they find somebody else at the, at the church, and they tell them their story. And then that person comes to me and they say something like, you need to repent for the way you treated him. And I say, they're, they're going to do the same thing to you that they did to me. And they say, well, you need to tell me what's going on. And, and here's the, the straight answer. I'm not going to be able to tell everybody everything that's going on sometimes. And we need to be able to trust our leaders and trust those that are, forget leaders, just godly friends of ours. Say, I don't, I, you, you shouldn't be the person that says, if I don't know every detail, then I'm going to assume you did something wrong. The church needs to be willing to call out those that only call on the Lord when they're in trouble and insist, like John the Baptist did in Luke 3, on good fruit. If you've really repented, 
then in six months, I should see your life start to blossom a little bit. But if every time you come in and you do this, in six months, you're right back on that same train, then perhaps it would be better for you to be out there for a while until you can come to the end of yourself. Let's keep going. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Long sections, but we gotta, we got to go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We'll go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Okay, so the second in the cycle involves going to Pharaoh, warning him, this time warning him of the locusts. And after the warning, all the servants are like, Pharaoh, let him go. So he calls them back, but he tries to negotiate with them. Well, I'm not going to let you take everybody. You can take the men, but not, not everybody else. And then he blames Moses and Aaron. He says, you've got some kind of evil plan, I can tell. So no, I'm not, I'm not going to let you go. And it says he, they were driven out. I read one commentator who said, it could very well be that this means physically driven out. That Pharaoh had them escorted out of his presence. So the locusts come. It says, on an east wind. Now the life cycle of a locust, it begins as an egg, and then it begins as what's called a hopper. So it's a locust that does not fly, but it can hop much like a grasshopper. As these things begin to multiply, and as they're closer together, this is fascinating, they go through a second metamorphosis as they rub close to each other. It increases their, their reproductive cycle, and it causes them to change into what are called the adult locusts. And they can fly, and they turn the, the dark brown color, and they swarm. And a locust swarm moves that the ones on the bottom are eating while those in the top are flying and landing almost in this wheel of death that eats all the crops and all the vegetation. In Virginia, we had these things called 17-year cicadas, about this big. They're black with these bright red eyes. And they, they were hatched one year, and they were everywhere. It was a game between me and my friend that worked at the church together. 
that we're going to see who can get from the church to their car without locusts landing on them. They were cicadas, but you understand. And we couldn't even make it from the, from the church to the car without getting hit or landed on us with these, these things. And every day we had to get out in the parking lot for church and sweep the dead cicadas off the parking lot. That's ministry. You learn that in the seminary. It's specialized training right there. Of course, those things were not ravaging the land. They were just annoying. But once again, Pharaoh prays for them to be removed, but then refuses to let them go. We always think of Egypt as this desert place, but it's really not. It's one of the most fertile, verdant places in that area because the Nile causes everything to grow. It's a green, lush place. And it's the beginning of the harvest. The crops are coming in and these locusts come and it says not one green thing was left. And Pharaoh refuses to let them go still. If you persist in this painful cycle of sin, of not doing what God wants you to do, trying to do it halfway, folks will come like Pharaoh's servants and try to tell you what is wrong with you. Stop doing this. But there are some folks who will then start to blame the very people trying to help them for the fix that they're in. Pharaoh's blaming Moses and Aaron. You've got some evil plan. Evil plan. You've enslaved an entire race of people. Don't talk to me about evil plan. Very often I have found the people who receive the most help and the most counsel become the most bitter. Which is why I, I try my best not to get into any long-term perpetual counseling situations. Because I have found that it's, it's not a productive use of time. Because so, such people are often looking for an excuse, something to blame in their lives. Not every time, but this has happened often enough that this has been my experience. So that when you finally say, listen, this isn't going anywhere. We need to, we need to break this off. Now they blame you. All my life and all my terrible decisions are your fault because you won't stick it out and keep having these interminable counseling sessions with me. They choose a single point of difficulty as the main issue. They've got a, this happens often in marriage counseling, unfortunately. The marriage is a mess. He's in the wrong. She's in the wrong. They can't get it right. The, the children are caught up in this mix and you're constantly being made part of, of this and then you say, listen, y'all have not done one thing I've told you to do. This is not going to stop until you get this right. Until you stop yelling and screaming and cussing at one another. Until y'all stop getting drunk together. Until you stop hanging out with those people. This isn't going to change. So very often what you'll do is you say, there, so we're not having another meeting until you've at least done that. Well, then it becomes our marriage is a mess because of him. It's his fault now. This is what Pharaoh's doing. We hear this for all kinds of things. There are those that say, well, nobody wants me to have this abortion, but nobody's going to help me after the baby's born. First of all, it's not true. There are plenty of godly people that are happy to help anybody struggling with that situation. But second of all, it's completely beside the point. It's wrong to do that. You don't get to blame other people for your tragic but poor choices. You disobeyed the Lord. You found yourself in a difficult place. You don't get to say that because somebody won't buy you a house or won't pay for your child to go to daycare or something. Therefore, you're justified in the sin of abortion. Addicts will do this. They always want money. They always want one more bit of help. And you know that they're just going to go and they're going to drink it up or they're going to smoke it up or whatever it is. And finally, you reach the point where they say, I, I, I can't make my rent. I, I, need, I need help this month. And you say, I'm not going to give you any more because I know you're just going to go and you're going to drink it all up. Well, I'm going to lose my house and it's your fault. Oh, no, it's not your fault. The refusal, as I said, to have one more meeting, all of that. You as a Christian, can I just liberate some of y'all? You do not need to take responsibility for the life of a belligerent sinner. It's not your life. You're not making those bad choices. And they are not making them because of you. They'll tell you that. Folks will tell you that to hook you in and, and to be part of, sometimes it's just to be part of the drama of their life. They feel interesting when bad things are happening. And if nothing bad happens for too long, something's going to blow up. And they try to hook you into that. You've got a normal, well-adjusted life. And you say, listen, I, this relationship has become toxic. You're toxic. It's all your fault. And then they go online and they start to badmouth you. And they write letters to other churches and tell you that that pastor is an evil man. You've got to watch out for him. And 
You do not need to take responsibility for a belligerent sinner. Or if you've tried to help them and you've told them what's right and they still refuse, you do not even need to feel bad. Proverbs 1, verses 19 through 31 says, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, because they would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof, therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. Let me put it to you this way. If the only thing standing between somebody, somebody's self-caused catastrophe is your intervention, you need to stop. Because that catastrophe is probably going to be the best thing for them. Take responsibility for your own sins and do not use somebody else as an excuse, especially not God. Well, if God would just give me everything that I want, everything would be better. Very often, no. You finally get the thing you've been asking for and nothing changes. Like Pharaoh. Verse 21. We'll come to the end here. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. This guy. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what we, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care to never see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. There's probably a side sermon I could give here in learning from Moses on how to deal with pushy people. All right, well, you can't have all of it. Moses goes, you have no right to tell me what I can and cannot have. Here's the, the third plague in the cycle, which of course is the ninth. Always comes without warning. This time it's darkness on the land. I, I think the most obvious explanation here is God just blotted out the sun. It did not shine supernaturally on Egypt. There are those that see this as some kind of sandstorm or dust storm. Let me, it sounds odd, but just hear it for a second. If the hail had destroyed all the, all the greenery and then the locusts come after that and they eat up everything else, what happens when you destroy all the vegetation in an area is the, the plants are no longer holding the dust and the sands in place and they begin to blow. And this happens from time to time in Egypt. This is what happened in the American Dust Bowl. Americans went west. There was the, the short, tough scrub grass that the buffalo used to feed on. Americans got out there and began to plant wheat and grain, which exhausted the soil very quickly to where it could no longer grow anything, but there was no longer that tough, hard grass to hold the ground together, and the dust blew for years in the middle of the Great Depression. There were even dust storms that stretched from Texas to Washington, D.C. and New York City, blowing across the country. Entirely man-made. Isn't that remarkable? In 1815, for example, there was a, there was a volcano that erupted in Indonesia, Mount Tambora, and it was called the year without a summer because the ash from that volcano got into the sky. And even in places like Virginia, North Carolina, the eastern seaboard of the United States, there was no summer and they were having frost and snow in July because the, blotted, the dust blotted out the sun. But none of that explains why there was light in Goshen. Do you understand? This is why some of these things are interesting, but it's really hard to know for sure. And at the very least, God is sovereignly putting up a, a wall between Goshen and the rest of it. All that really matters for the sake of the story is that it was dark. The greatest God for Egypt, other than the Nile River, was the sun god, Ra. But God is the one who in the beginning said, let there be light, and there was light. And the Lord is showing them who is truly Lord here. The one constant in all of this has been at least the sun still rises and sets. And if you look at Egyptian mythology and religion, that was a big part of, of how they thought. The constant cycle of the sun is something they worshipped. And God comes in and says, no more sun. And for three days, people didn't even leave their houses 
Oh, you thought there was panic when the coronavirus was rampaging through the country. How about there's no sun and there's no electric light and you're so scared you don't even leave your house. Now the people are hungry because all the food's been destroyed. They're sick because they had boils and all their, their, their flocks and herds have died and it smells because there's dead frogs and there's flies everywhere. And things have burned to the ground and now there's no sun. They're desperate. So Pharaoh calls them in and he agrees to let them go, but he says, but you can't take your flocks and herds. Now perhaps he's thinking, look, we just lost everything. We can at least keep that. But his heart is still hard and Moses stands his ground. And by the way, when you stand your ground with a bully, they get angry. You stand your ground with a reasonable person and at least you can have a conversation. But get out, you're never going to see my face again. If you're a nice guy like me, you walk out of that and go, did I do something wrong? No, you didn't. <laughs> he casts Moses from his presence, which becomes a turning point in the story. I'm never going to see you in this place again. And this ends the cycle of the, the three threes. You will never be accepted by God, my friend, until you allow yourself to totally hit rock bottom. Astonishingly, Pharaoh's not there yet. You have to die to yourself and come to God with nothing in your hand. You don't get to come to God and say, okay, but the livestock stay with me. Moses says, I don't think so. We're going to go serve the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What happens to people who carry crosses? They die. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Christianity begins at the cross. You don't work your way up to the cross. If you won't die with Christ, you won't live with Christ. Folks come to God wanting salvation, but they want to keep their personality the way it is. That's just the way I talk to people. That's just the way I handle things. And God goes, well, I'm calling you to love your neighbor and even to love your enemies. And to turn the other cheek. Or they want to keep their addictions. All right, God, I want to be saved, but you, know, you can't tell me that I got I to gotta give up the weed. I've had this conversation before. I'm serious. I want to be saved, but does that mean I can't smoke weed? No. The Bible says that we are to be in complete command of ourselves at all times. And I don't care if it's teddy bears. If you won't give it up to follow Jesus, you, no. The answer is no. Or there's sexuality. I want to be saved, but I'm gay and I'm not changing that. You don't get to hold on to anything. And come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or their own ideas. I have a dear friend who is lost and is starting to make his way back to the Lord, I hope. But he's absorbed so many weird ideas and he refuses to let them go. Well, I know this to be true. I'm like, you don't know anything. You can't come to God like that. God does not do halfway disciples. Until you can recognize the light of God, you'll walk in darkness. And John 3.19 says that's why God judges people. Because they prefer darkness. I'd rather live my life my way, even if it's wicked. The way of faith is to come to the Lord with nothing in your hand. Do not deceive yourself into thinking that you belong to Jesus Christ if you refuse to let him strip you of everything. So these are the nine plagues we've had so far. It begins with bloody water in the Nile that extended even to the, the pots and jugs they had in the house. And all the frogs come out of the water and the Lord supernaturally multiplies them. And there's frogs in everywhere in the house and in the cupboards and in the bed and in the bowls. And the frogs all die and they pile them up in these huge stinking piles. And then maggots and lice begin to feed on these frogs and they're crawling in your hair and in your house. And you missed one in the ceiling. So now there's maggots and lice living in your ceiling. And then those things become flies which start to fly around and bite the livestock and they die from the disease. And people get bitten and they get bored boils, these rupturing pus-filled things on their body. The Lord sends hail which falls and ravages the land with ice and fire. Locusts come and finish off the rest. And then the Lord turns out the lights and Egypt is in darkness. And yet Pharaoh was still defiant. You know, you have that line in the Ten Commandments where Yul Brynner says it as only he can. He says, better to die in battle with a God than to live in shame. And you're thinking, you're an idiot. Yes, foolishness. You can't win that fight. 
God is Lord. He is King. He is Commander. He is not to be debated with or bargained with. You bow the knee to Him. And if you say, I bow to no one, then you need to move along because you're still under judgment. You see all around you, God's way is the best way. And people say this all the time. I know that the way you're living is the good way, but that's just not who I am. Makes me nuts. Friends I grew up in church with that know better. And they say, I wish I had your life, Tyler. And I said, I don't have a special life. I'm walking in obedience to the Lord. And I just don't think I could do that. And it, it it's, breaks my heart. Why do we do this? When you see that those who serve the Lord are spared so many calamities, why are you so reluctant to give up your own insignificant kingdom? Well, I always pray when I feel bad. It's well and good to be sad, but beware if you continue to harden your heart. Like the children of Israel in Judges, God would deliver them from oppression and they'd go right back to their idols and the cycle would start all over again. I call on you today, whoever you are, to die to yourself. Give up your life and all of its trappings so that God can remake it in his own image apart from sin and fear and death. And you know what the Bible says the Lord will do if you do that? In Joel chapter 2, the Lord said, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. God is ready to restore to you what is broken if you will come in sincere repentance, not holding on to anything else and willing to submit yourself unto God. Jesus died on the cross so that I could make this offer to you. So like he says in Hebrews, don't harden your hearts as you hear the voice of the Lord today. All I'm asking for you to do is to give up what is already killing you anyway and find new, abundant, everlasting life in Christ.